So you guys uh, brought all of this from Kauai? Yeah, we brought it all. Like, we, we loaded up, and then we're like, all right. Oh, man. Yeah. That's a lot of suitcases. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. I mean, oh, is, we, we only came overnight, so it's like, <laughs> this is all the stuff we brought. We get, like, one um, yeah. one rifle case we put them in. Yeah, we just put <laughs> all the... Yeah, we, we TSA put all, never stopped you. TSA said... <laughs> they, TSA always, s- they always ask. TSA <laughs> said, hey, brother, were you hunting? I said, uh-uh, we podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we interview it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're not... You're not going for uh, smoked meat, uh, venison, or <laughs> no? <laughs> I mean, if you get, you know, yeah, what I mean? yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you have some, I'll take it. <laughs> well, you guys never bring OP heat too. Oh <laughs> man, Bruh. I know that Kauai OP is so big. Yeah, and yellow, and and, yellow, and yeah. sweet, really, you know. Um, but you don't like me OP. I might. I mean, I turn my back to the to the waves, you know. <laughs> oh, dang, dangerous! Dangerous. Yeah. All right. Can all hear right. me good, Ernie. Uh, yeah, I can hear yeah. you good. Okay, Cherry. Right on. Yeah. I mean, we're so we're already recording. Yeah. And then we'll clip whenever we, like, kind of start, but then it makes <laughs> it easier. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the easiest way, and we'll, we'll try to help you with it, is to become just, like, as if we're just talking. Okay. Where it's mm-hmm. not, like, never, I mean, it's weird because the things are here and all that, but, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, thank you for meeting with us. Yeah. Yeah, I guess if you want to, like, just give, like, a little intro of yourself um, just for people who, like, we just hope to get this to as many people as possible. That, that's kind of stuff. Um, Xavier here is, like, one of the top, like, like social media people in Hawaii. So he has, like, a pretty big reach, especially in Hawaii. So we, we were just, like, listening. We, were, um, we saw your thing on um, the news. And, like, for Outer Island guys like us, it, once it leaves that news cycle, it's like, you're like, oh, is it taken care of? You know, so for us, I was like, we're really moved by, like, what you're saying. We, th- we thought it was really important. We thought it's w- what people need to hear and in a long format, mm-hmm. you know. So, like, a lot of times, like, the news gives you, like, three, a three-minute clip. A soundbite. Yeah, yeah. To, yeah, to try and, like, encompass this huge issue. Yeah. You know, and for us, we want to kind of just dig in and really get, like, what's going on? Like, how long? What's, what's the, like, bigger umbrella story uh, of what's happening? And to give people who kind of don't have any access to this information, like, access to it. You know. Everybody has a phone. Yeah. Internet. Mm-hmm. And exactly. Social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so the, if you want, I can start the story. Yeah, yeah, start the story, yeah. please. Yeah, please. So it begins actually in 1940. Uh, in 1940, uh, just before we went to war with Japan and Pearl Harbor got attacked, uh, the military decides to build these massive underground fuel storage tanks at Pearl Harbor. And uh, you got to wonder, did they know war was coming and they were going to commit to this huge project? Mm-hmm. So they built these 20 tanks at Red Hill, Kapukaki, uh, underground in secret from 1940 to 1943. Mm-hmm. And it could hold as much as 250 million gallons of fuel. So it was a massive underground facility. It was done in secret. So they built it in only three years, uh, working continuously, and um, they got it done. It only stopped when Pearl Harbor was attacked on December 7th, and then they continued work on the facility. Okay, so this is even pre-Pearl Harbor then? This is pre-Pearl Harbor. Okay. Yeah. Pre-Pearl Harbor, pre-World War II? Pre-World War II. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so they, they were like building up. They were getting ready for war. Yeah. And uh, 
And they, you know, it was an engineering marvel. They built these tanks. They're 250 feet tall, 100 feet in diameter or across, and can hold 12.5 million gallons per tank. Um, you can fit Aloha Tower. If you go down Honolulu yeah. Harbor, you see Aloha Tower. You can stick Aloha Tower into one of the tanks. That's oh. crazy. Yeah. It is crazy. It's, great. it's kind of mind-boggling. And it was done in secret. It, and all this, this facility was kept secret only till 1995 when it was declassified. Oh, really? So, like, even the Board of Water, and, or nobody knew about it until, the, like, statute of limitations for, like, the classification? I, I didn't know about it. There may have been some of the old, old mm-hmm. managers that maybe the Navy consulted when they were building it uh, that might have known about it, but they're, they've passed on. Uh, mm-hmm. So I only learned about it in 2014. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that's recent. <coughs> yeah. So, <laughs> like, whoa. Yeah. So what happened in 2014, uh, they had a lang- uh, leak from one of the tanks, tank number five, about 27,000 gallons of fuel. Okay. And, and uh, they had to report it. And I, I still remember the day, I think it was January 13, 2014. It was about 1230 or so. The Department of Health, somebody at the Department of Health calls us and says, there's an underground fuel storage tank leak. At Red Hill, and the, and we were wondering what, what is there at Red Hill, and um, that was the beginning of this almost nine year uh, journey that I've been on uh, since that first happened. Well, that's pretty crazy. Like, I mean, honestly, just from like a pedestrian standpoint, I didn't know that. Like, I mean, recently we've heard so much about Red Hill mm-hmm. and about the aquifers and stuff, but so the first real major leak was, or that you know about was 2000. And that was uh, 2014. 14, 14. And actually there were leaks before that, but they, nobody really knew about it. Mm. At least we didn't know about that. And the whole um, facility that can contain up to 250 million gallons of fuel sits right above our drinking water aquifer. Um, and, you know, you guys are from Kauai, mm-hmm. and I used to manage the water department there, the Department of Water. And uh, Kauai depends on uh, groundwater, too, underground aquifers, uh, primarily for their drinking water. So this facility sat right only 100 feet above the aquifer itself. So any kind of leak from the facility will eventually get down into the groundwater. And the crazy thing about it is that at Red Hill, less than half a mile away, the Navy also built a drinking water source called Red Hill Shaft. And, and is that the one for the base? And that's one, the one that serves the entire Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam, which has its own water system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Red Hill Shaft is, con- to get to the pump room for Red Hill Shaft, their drinking water source, you have to go through the same tunnel carrying the fuel pipelines uh, that connect the tanks about three miles, Malka, to the Pearl Harbor uh, Makai. Uh, so it's all an integrated facility. Yeah, I mean, did they know that the, that the aquifers were there when they built that? They, they must have they because have to, they, right? they yeah. developed a drinking water source mm. for Pearl Harbor uh, using the same tunnel to get to it. I see. Uh, to construct that drinking water source uh, at Red Hill. Yeah, I mean, I've been talking, like, we've been talking about this a lot. Um, and I just try to attack it from, like, every angle. Like, um, I always try to take, like, the opposing view. And that's kind of how I like, like, but even from like the Navy standpoint, like, um, 
like a their own personnel are like heavily affected. Yeah. Because they're I mean they're probably the first to get affected even before the main mm. aquifer. Um it's obviously a system that's deteriorating and breaking. So it's inevitable that it will. And then like from a financial standpoint, like to ruin a whole aquifer and like to have to now supplement water in some other ways long term would be so financially devastating. I mean, so, and we haven't even gotten to like the environmental part yet, which is yeah, like the major thing. You Brandon, know? Brandon, you're, you're talking logic. No, exactly. So, <laughs> so that's why you I'm know, like, like common sense. It kind of makes sense, you know, when you think about it, because it's, it's crazy that you're going to put a fuel facility so huge mm -hmm. right above the water source that you're depending on to serve your base, mm -hmm. that they're, they're drinking water. Uh, not all their drinking water, but maybe about 25% of their drinking water comes from this drinking water source. Because, I mean, recently a lot of, like, the, the really bad poisoning was, like, actual military personnel, right? Uh, yeah, it didn't affect the Board of Water Supply customers, the 1 million people that we serve, but it affected the 93,000 people that are served by the Navy's water system for Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam. Yeah, which to me is kind of crazy, right? Like, your own personnel, your own people... Like, they're, I don't want to say irrelevant, but, like, that's not your top priority, you know, where... I, I kind of think of it as, it's really sad. Oh, for sure. It's really sad because, you know, the the fa the, the soldiers or sailors, uh, uh, the military personnel that are on the base served by this water system, they are the ones that are going to go out to battle to protect our freedom. And they leave behind their families and children, their children there on base thinking that the military will protect them and keep them safe. And yet uh, this happened shortly after Thanksgiving last year where the tap water coming out of their faucets in their home had jet fuel in it and smelled like jet fuel. And, and they had serious health effects. And then so... The Navy said that it was going to uh, empty them by a certain date, correct? Uh, yeah. They s w what was that date? Uh, they've said right now, the middle of 2024. Okay. And that was before the leak of the firefighting foam liquid, concentrate mm -hmm. liquid last week. And now I think that timeline, uh, they've kind of hinted toward it that it might be delayed because uh, the leak in the uh, F system that happened on the 29th, they have to address that uh, before they can get back uh, to work on the. On so the A triple F system is the fire, like a fire suppression system. Yeah, it's a you know uh, for uh, petroleum fires you can't use water yeah. because if you pour water on top of it, it, it actually what happens the fuel floats on top of the water and the fuel's on fire, the water would just kind of spread the fuel, mm -hmm. fire around. Mm -hmm. It won't really put the fire out. So they they use systems like foam systems mm -hmm. to put out the petroleum fire. And um, and they have this system at Red Hill. And then I also read, I think it was a quote from you. That how long would it take for them to actually just empty the fuel, like from a like like actual capable? Like say tomorrow they say we want to start emptying the fuel. How long would that take? Uh, they they're telling us it'll take months mm -hmm. uh, to do it, uh, and. Uh, I don't know exactly how long, but I kind of think back at 2024, uh, 2014 when tank number five leaked. It took them about five days to empty that one tank. 
uh, of fuel because it was leaking. Uh, so, and you've got maybe uh, 12 or 14 tanks with fuel right now in there at Red Hill and about 104 million gallons of diesel and jet fuel. So it, it'll take them a little while, but it shouldn't take them a year or two yeah, years yeah. to do it. My thoughts on this is that they built this facility in three years, from 1940 to 1943, the entire facility. All 20 tanks underground, the over three miles of pipelines that run from the tanks to Pearl Harbor, the pump room at Pearl Harbor, they built all of that in three years. So why can't they uh, safely empty the fuel out uh, faster than you know, the middle of 2024. No, completely. Because, I mean, obviously, it's such a risk to, like, future leaks, right? Or, or leaks in between the time they empty it till now. And then, because, like, if, if, if the aquifer got contaminated, what would be the, the repercussion? Is it, like, right. cleanable? Yeah. Or is it yeah. once no. it's... So I want to clarify, right now... The aquifer below the fuel facility, the fuel tanks, and nearby is contaminated. Oh, so there's fuel in the main aquifer at this it's point. It's a fuel that has dissolved into the groundwater, into the water in the aquifer. Okay. And there, the Navy's monitor wells, uh, the data collected from tests of the water from those monitor or test wells documents the contamination. Okay, so it is contaminated at this point. It is contaminated. The question would be, uh, almost like if you had this cup here, mm -hmm. it's got water in it. Say that water was the aquifer and the cup was the area, the yep. lava valley. On one side of the cup, you have the Navy's straw for Red Hill shaft and where the Navy fuel tanks are located. On the other side of the cup, you have the Board of Water Supply and one of our largest sources for Honolulu Halava shaft, also pumping from the same cup, the aquifer. And the water is not sitting in a, a, res a big lake it's actually in the cracks and crevices of the lava rock. But we're sucking out of both sides. So if fuel gets dumped on this side, if we keep them pumping on this side, will we eventually draw it across the cup here into our wells and into our water system? And we can't afford to do that. Like, I mean, financially, that would be, like, crazy. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, financially it would be crazy because we don't have the billions of dollars yeah. the Navy spent uh, on... Uh, responding to the contamination last year. I yeah. think they spent uh, over, probably over a billion dollars just responding to the contamination of their their base's water system and, and helping the people. We don't have that kind of resources. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, we don't want to affect the health of the 400,000 mm -hmm. people that are served by the Honolulu water system or the twenty or 30,000 people in the Aiea Halava system. Yeah. We don't want to supply them fuel-contaminated water. A hundred percent. Environmentally, is there a way to once it ha like once a certain level of contamination happens, is there a threshold that's like after this point that's too much where there's no cleaning it, there's no yeah. fixing it, and that uh, so if remember you have at Red Hill you have a hundred and four million gallons of diesel and jet fuel a hundred feet over the aquifer. If you, if you had a leak of even maybe 1 million gallons, mm -hmm. that could cause a contamination plume to uh, impact the aquifer that could be basically untreatable, that the level of contamination yeah. wouldn't be treatable. 
Um, and the question would be how far, uh, say, westward or eastward of the Red Hill facility could this contaminate, contaminant plume migrate? Because border water supply, we have more wells to the west, mm-hmm. especially in the uh, going toward Pearl Harbor that serve Honolulu and the, that whole Aia Halawa Pearl City system. Uh, so, so we don't know if it can be treated. Uh, if it's really heavily contaminated, maybe not. Maybe infeas- uh, not feasible to treat. Uh, wh- then we'll have to just basically abandon our wells, go drill wells miles away where the fuel can never travel to yeah, and, and bear that cost. We are looking at those both alternatives right now. Uh, can we treat and to what level of contamination can we reasonably treat the water to make it safe to drink? and what the cost would be, and what type of treatments and processes would be required. Uh, we're also looking at drilling new wells far enough away, we hope far enough away, that won't be impacted by fuel leaks out of Red Hill. And right now, leaks have occurred from Red Hill. Mm-hmm. Last year, uh, maybe you know, 19, 20,000 gallons between the May and the November events last year. And then prior to that, it's documented at least 72 documented releases from Navy uh, information, Navy reports, uh, possibly a total of 180,000 gallons of past fuel releases over its 79-year history. From when we look at the records, you know, the, we've been asking for information and greater transparency from the Navy on this facility. Just open up and share all your information about your experiences how much leaked, when it leaked, what type of fuel. The earliest record we can find is from a report from uh, uh, documenting a leak, I think it was in 1946 or 1947. So almost like when they first opened it. Opened in 43, 46, (laughs) 47, they already had a leak, and I think it was from tank number 16. Uh, And there's a report by Bechtel that documents that that leak. And then just because I don't know. Um, How many tanks total are there? There are 20 tanks. 20 tanks. Each tank can hold 12.5 million gallons per tank. So you remember the Exxon Valdez, or maybe you guys are too young to remember Exxon Valdez in Alaska. Um, I'm not too sure. Okay, so you guys are are young. I'm I'm an old guy, Kupuna here. But the Exxon Valdez, um, a super tanker, leaked off the shoreline of Alaska and contaminated a very pristine area. I think it was about 11.5 million gallons. So one super tanker worth is in each t- uh, fuel is the equivalent of one of these tanks. So we have 20 super tankers yeah. under, in, standing in, vertically, vertically in, underground, in deep yeah. underground in that mountain, in that Red Hill Ridge, Kapu Kaki. That's crazy. I blow my mind. It is mind-boggling. And if you get a chance to actually go there, you can make a request to the Navy to see if you can get in there to see it. You... you you don't realize how huge. Uh, I w- I've been in it many times over the years. And they take you in through an 8-foot diameter opening at the 200-foot level of a tank, about the 200-foot level. You go in through a kind of a, a, this, a walkway that's uh, hanging out there, uh, supported by a, a, a kind of a structure in the middle of the tank. And you can look down, and it's about 200 feet down to see the bottom of the tank. If you're afraid of heights, you don't want to go into one of these tanks. They're so huge. And the only thing that keeps the fuel from leaking out of these tanks 
is a quarter-inch steel plate that was welded in 1940, early 1940s. In three years. In three years, and it's rusting from the outside in. And then on top of that, last year we saw the vulnerabilities of the steel pipes that connect these tanks, these massive tanks, to Pearl Harbor where the ships can get fuel or where they pump fuel from Pearl Harbor up to these tanks. And that steel pipe is the original steel pipe. And it's giving them problems, serious problems. So this whole facility is, like one of our consultants said, it's at end of life. Yeah, It's beyond its, beyond its useful life. It should have been retired years ago uh, before all these leaks occurred. I mean, it's kind of crazy, right? Like, they obviously have to be thinking of a solution in a sense of even if they don't want to move the gas or the fuel, at some point it won't hold fuel, so they'll have to be forced to do it. Do they have any kind of, or do you know if they have any kind of contingencies to, like, replace or create a different alternative of holding fuel or, or just not holding as much fuel? Uh, I believe they've done, uh, they've kind of mentioned the different fueling studies because they look at fuel fuel storage not only here on Oahu but across the whole Pacific region. That they've done a few studies and they have some plans out there, but they've never shared them with us. I guess they would consider those uh, secret and uh, national security Security. issues. But definitely I think they have talked a lot about it because it's only a matter of time where Red Hill will be completely unusable and leaking. Uh, leaking so badly that, you know, it would just, they have to shut it down. But fortunately, you know, the secretary, current Secretary of Defense on March 7th of this year made the decision to defuel and close the facility. But that unfortunately happened after 93,000 people were exposed with fuel-contaminated water in their drinking water in their homes. Yeah, I mean... That's crazy, because that's like, we come from Kauai. Yes. That's more than our whole island. A lot more. That's like more than every single person on our whole island. And I used to work on Kauai almost uh, seven years, seven, eight years. And the population at that time was only like 50,000, 60,000 people. So the population of Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam is like all the resident population, more than the people of Kauai that live there. Yeah. It is mind-boggling. No, it it completely... I don't know. I, I get, I I get a little bit irritated in the sense where like we can visibly see we're budgeting f- from a military and federal. Like if you can give Ukraine this much, but you know there is like a domestic need for it, something to happen drastically and fast, and would probably poison equal amount of people that are getting hurt. Like like obviously want to help people, right? But there's so many needs right here in this very specific thing. Like, I went through Hurricane Nikki, So, I, I was a kid. But I also remember, like, once you don't have access to water, your life, like, changes. Like, having to boil water, do all these things just to drink something. Or, like, not having water to flush a toilet. Or, like, just a, just a whole slew of things. Like, it became such a huge issue. Like, your whole day almost, like, kind of went to planning on how you're going to, like, fill these basic human needs. You know? So, like, to think that it's what seems, I mean, and I'm sure it's not an afterthought to them, 
but it's not obviously the highest priority in, in all the things going on that, that that's not happening you know and such a huge place and i mean even more so with like people who are hired by them specifically you know and not getting their basic needs like put you know th- their basic human needs yeah. like prioritize over whatever their reason is because we don't know you know because i mean i don't think it's a capability thing i guess that's my thing in my I, head i could be wrong yeah you, you, i think you brandon you brandon right? yeah yeah i think you're you're right it's uh i think their top priority is fighting wars yeah and everything that everything they need to fight the battle and win the battle and that's good but what what's also important is something called critical infrastructure mm-hmm. And water systems, water supply is part of critical infrastructure because no water, no life. You can't live without water. And you can. And after Iniki, and I happened to go two weeks after Iniki, and I saw how I went to visit my uncle. It was tough, uh, if you, especially if you didn't have running water in your home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they just need to learn how and provide the proper attention. And, and oversight of their critical infrastructure to make sure it's taken care of. But then in this case at Red Hill, it was like weighing fuel storage versus clean drinking water. And I think fuel storage underground in the World War II facility kind of seemed to weigh higher than protecting their drinking water source and protecting the environment and the aquifer, protecting the vine. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, it's just crazy. How often does whoever's in the Navy in charge rotate through? Yeah, every two or three years. So I've been on this thing since 2014. I work with maybe four or five admirals. Right now I'm working with three admirals that are here, and they're they're probably some of the better admirals I've worked with over the last eight, nine years. But in a couple years, they're going to be gone. Gone. They're going to be reassigned to other locations, other responsibilities. And a whole new crop of leaders will come in to, that are in charge of the situation. What, what are, I mean, this is just for me because I don't really know, but what are their jobs and, like, their roles? And how do you guys, like, work together, you know, like, with the admirals specifically? It's, a, it's always been a challenge trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, more recently, there are now at least three admirals. So Admiral John Wade, uh, he's uh, the highest-ranking admiral. He's in charge of the Joint Task Force responsible for defueling, getting the 104 million gallons emptied out of the tanks and pipes. Then you have Admiral Stephen Barnett. He's in charge for Navy Region Hawaii. Uh, That's responsible, I think, for closure of the fuel facility and also the cleanup of the environment. And then you have another Admiral, Admiral Jeff Killian, head of NAFAC uh, Pacific. Uh, he oversees all the uh, engineers and engineering and construction activities. Uh, so uh, uh, doing the repairs, uh, drilling monitor wells, uh, maintaining the Navy's water system for Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam, I think, kind of fall under his responsibility between, his responsibility between him and Admiral Barnett. So this is kind of the challenge here. Everything in the Navy is kind of siloed. Uh, they, they don't have somebody in charge of the whole thing that crosses all areas. 
So there's a, usually it's split between different groups. Yeah, it's like all comp- compartmentalized, right? So to get something done is ultra hard because you have to get like through every single different layer. Yeah, I, I yeah. don't fully understand it, but it looks like it's all heavily uh, compartmentalized yeah. or siloed, uh, and there are specific uh, responsibilities and, and uh, not much overlap. Yeah. No, I mean, so I, I used to be a chef at a hotel, and like basically th- it almost sounds like that middle management, right? Like generally hotels in Hawaii, like people come in from the mainland, they go two years, they try to put, they don't try to do too much change in a beneficial way. They try to just like paint a really rosy picture so that when they leave, they can get like a promotion. Oh. So, so it almost sounds like that, right? Like I'm going to come in as the assistant food and beverage manager. I'm going to come in, do these things. I'm not going to really solve the major issues because that takes too much time and effort. I'm going to just kind of re, you know, redecorate, do these things and be able to like do a presentation on my way out. And I get, I get to move up to food and beverage manager in Orlando. Or wherever, you know, so I mean, it almost sounds like that because the next person comes in and they inherit this cumulative problem that's been happening for so long, you know. That's a, that's a great analogy. A- another analogy I kind of think about this is that they come in, they're here for two or three years, and they basically, if you can picture this, kick the rusty oil can down the road, yeah. hope nothing happens under their watch, mm. and then they're out of there and not longer responsible or mm-hmm. accountable for it the next new guy comes in and every you know every time it's like kicking the rusty yeah. old leaking oil can down the road is there a way to like supersede these specific per- like to make it a issue with the navy with somebody higher up than them so it continues to get worked on regardless of who comes in to the next time you know that's a good question because uh, we all live here uh, and this issue is important not only for Oahu, but I think it demonstrates the importance of protecting and managing our vi mm-hmm. across our state, critical freshwater resources. So how do we create something that will provide continued oversight over a, the Department of Defense mm-hmm. to make sure that even though the command changes every two or three years, the effort is they're kept accountable uh, because the you know the difference when the Navy deals with me here at the Board of Water Supply, I've been on this thing for eight, nine years, but they've been on it for, you know, they just got here a few months ago. Mm-hmm. They just they have to learn. Uh, and by the time they kind of get up to speed, they're moving on already. Yeah. So, But I have the, the continuity of knowledge and, and my staff here, you know, like Erwin Kawata has been great uh, with me all the way from 2014 to the present. So, you know, maybe something, some people have suggested something like the situation with Kaho'olawe and how the uh, Kaho'olawe Islands Reserve Commission or Kirk was created Mm -hmm. to provide ongoing oversight. But somehow maybe we need to look how does the oversight gets provided uh, regardless of the turnover at the Navy side. Percent, and then do you think this would be like a state kind of like oversight board or city county? Uh, it or just be, independent? I think it, well, it's beyond the city and county of the local government, yeah. so it's it has to involve the state and then also into the federal. So I'm not sure if it should be like a, a state group or a um, 
something created by federal law that has clout on federal agencies, on the DOD. Mm-hmm. But because if you pass something here at the state legislature, it don't necessarily it cover, apply yeah. to the feds. And the feds may, you know, just tell us aloha. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it, 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 I was talking to Xavier. Like, it's obviously water is like one straight up issue of like, there, like, there's no real reason why. And I don't think there's any argument that can be made that like you shouldn't protect your water. Right. But when it does get into the state level, it's complicated, right? From a financial standpoint, like, you know, like military is the number two economic, you know, contributor to the state, you know? So I, I know that I don't want to, it's not an excuse, but it's, it's a tricky subject to like partner with the military. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying get the military out oh, of no, the no, way. Yeah. Uh, but both the military and both the people who Hawaii depend on this precious mm-hmm. water resources. And the difference between here and the mainland is in Hawaii, according to our state constitution, these water resources are public trust resources. Nobody owns it. It's for the people of Hawaii. So we need they need to kind of think about that and think about their trust responsibilities to protect and maintain and clean up this resource that mm-hmm. they've uh, contaminated, that they've created so much pilikia with. Yeah. 100%. Um, I guess, yeah, so me, I'm, right now I'm just trying to create this whole, like, big backdrop. Because in the end, like, when we, as we as we keep on talking, like, my big thing is, like, so what do we do now? Like, what are the things? So now we've kind of, like, identified that it's the state maybe co-working with the federal government to figure out some stuff. So as people of Hawaii, what do you think we should do? You know, who do we talk to? Like, should we petition, like, the state government to kind of spearhead this in a way to to create these kind of like oversights so i I, you know i've always said uh, from uh, you know over the last year since the terrible leak into the water system of pearl harbor uh joint base pearl harbor hickam the contamination of their water system that this is going to require everybody in hawaii working together all levels of government from the city to the state to the federal and the federal is very important here. Our congressional delegation is extremely important because the DOD is a federal agency and, w- and the state legislature doesn't necessarily have the kind of clout mm-hmm. over a federal agency. But our congressional delegation, through their efforts in Congress and with the president, can make a difference. And we really need them to stay on this, not only for the next year, but for years to come, because, guys, it's going to take years to clean up the aquifer here, uh, aquifer, the groundwater in this area, uh, if we're av- even able to do it. And lately, the last week was the release of something called PFAS, the forever yeah. chemicals from the firefighting foam concentrate. Yeah. It's been released over 1,300 gallons just last week. Yeah, we, we're re- oh, well, I was reading about that. <clears throat> So, I mean, it doesn't disappear, right? So that's why they're loading up all these barrels with soil and shipping them away just because there's actually, it won't go away. It won't go away. Like ever. Which which is like suits. Yeah. You know, like. Which is crazy, yeah? 
like gnarly that they have to, you know like they're wearing hazmat suits to dump these this camp contaminated dirt in these barrels ship them to wherever they bring them to they're gonna ship them to the mainland for disposal right which um, they probably bury in a bunker somewhere <laughs> well these and remember these chemicals are they dissolve very easily in water so they flow in the groundwater. They get into the groundwater in the aquifer, and they can flow with it easily. And they, they're pers- persistent in the environment, so they don't break down very easily. They last a long time. Which, which is also crazy, right? Like, so it's almost like compounding. I don't want to come indices, but like, uh, like <laughs> right? Where, like, you're going to, like, put out a fire with something that's going to contaminate the water permanently and the soil permanently so i mean it's almost like you're li- adding layer on top of layer like i mean and i'm no fire expert so i, I mean maybe it's the only chemical for the job I, but there, there are some alternatives uh, for this foam system that doesn't contain pfos so but they are not using it um, if you take out the 104 million gallons like next month <laughs> then there's no need for an AFFF firefighting foam system so it's because of the volume of, like, the, how much fuel is in there. Because you, to fight a petroleum fire, you can't pour water on it. Mm-hmm. That'll make it worse. So you have to use something like foam. Yeah. Uh, but if you take away all the fuel quickly, yeah, then you don't need the, the foam, foam yeah, anymore. Yeah. You can get rid of all of that. Where? First, I always try to understand these things, and it's, it's hard for me. Um, but where... Are we at like in terms of steps or in the process of actually, um, you know, possibly defueling or, or draining the tanks like with the military? Is that something that is is happening? These they they've taken the first step and fortunately with no mishaps or leaks, they drained the pipes. So there are three pipes that run almost uh, about three miles from the tanks to Pearl Harbor where the ships come in with the fuel or they take the fuel out of the tanks. The three pipelines are very in size from 16 inches in diameter to 18 inches to 32 inches in diameter. And they were successful in draining about 1 million gallons of diesel or jet fuel out of those pipes, diesel and jet fuel out of those pipes. Uh, Now they have to go back and do repairs to some of those pipes so that they can drain the rest of the 104 million gallons still stored there in the tanks. So the pipes are empty, but the tanks are still contained fuel. Fuel, okay. I mean, so they're, they're, they are doing the process, it's just... They're doing the process, and, you know, that's why I, I, con- I try to talk to them. I want to open up the lines of communication uh, with them so I can share my concerns, uh, and also ask them a lot of questions. Mm. Because the other issue with this whole thing, and also with our regulators, the Department of Health and the EPA, which I have jurisdiction over this situation, is the issue of transparency of information. Mm. From the very beginning in 2014, we told the Navy folks, just come clean. Just tell us like it is. And my... My friend, uh, my work coworker, Erwin uh, Kawata, says, good, bad, or indifferent, just yeah. tell us. Because then we know what the problem and challenges are. We know what happened, what might have been 
release into the environment, then we can deal with that. But it's been a battle for going on nine years just to get information uh, and complete information uh, from the Navy. And I would just also encourage to the Department of Health and EPA to be more transparent with their information, to keep the community informed. We've taken the approach, and Brandon, I'm sorry, I keep on, Xavier, I keep on talking here, but uh, this is such a critical, critically important issue for our community because no water, water is life. It's such an important issue. Our community needs to be kept informed about what's happening, what is found, what what is being done, and they need to be kept informed on a regular basis. And all information should be shared. But that's still, unfortunately, you know, from the recent experience, it looks like it's, it's still, we're not there yet. When you say, like, Department of Health be more transparent, like, w- does that mean, like, for them, for the reports, like how much people are, are, are getting sick if there are people sick and stuff like that? Yeah, they need to make those, that information available. So what, what was kind of what's kind of crazy over the last year, especially shortly after the leak last year, the Navy was out there holding town hall meetings with the affected families. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we were being asked. So what we did was whatever we knew, we shared we would hold press conferences. We would, we would talk to people. Anybody that asked that wanted to get a briefing on what was happening, I never said no. So we've done over three, in the last year, I think we've done over 300 talks with people to educate folks on what we know about the facility, what the issues are with Red Hill and the aquifer. Uh, and, the, and why I do that is because knowledge empowers people i want people to be aware of the situation i don't want it to fade in memory fade fade away and be forgotten everybody needs to be informed and uh, on this because it's so important for our community and sharing whatever information we have with the community is our way of trying to help empower our community and the efforts that led to the Secretary of Defense deciding to shut down the facility. That wasn't Ernie Lau doing that, working eight years, nine years on it. It was the effort of everybody together speaking up with one voice. Mm. And that made a difference. No, 100%. And that's our goal, whatever mm-hmm. we can help with and, and keep going. Because it is that important. I mean, we're on Kauai. Like, it doesn't affect our water. But it's such a bigger issue, you know, mm-hmm. like it's just the basic of like, like respect for like basic human things, whether it's environment or water or like how you said, even just like kind of respect of like transparency, you know, of stuff that is relevant to, you know, because if they make the argument classify this, that like, but it's so relevant to people, right? Like even when they decommission these things, you without the knowledge you don't even know what you're walking into after that. That's you don't even correct. know what kind of like mess you're going to walk into and like how to even like deal with it. Like even if they gave you that information, you could walk in and at least like kind of go in prepared, knowing what tools you need, what equipment you need, what kind of decontamination, where specifically things have happened. 
and all those things to kind of like because that's the thing is even when they empty the thing it's not like the job is done no no that's exactly true the job is actually only beginning when they empty those things, we've removed the sword that's hanging over yeah. our heads over the, our water resource. But the problems are still there. The problems of what was already leaked and mm-hmm. what already damaged the aquifer, the, the groundwater. Yeah, because, I mean, we know from the 40s till now, there's been multiple incidents. We just don't know the, the amounts and, like, to the degree things have happened. Yeah, we don't know. We know there probably are documents and reports. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've been in Pearl Harbor er, during the early years of early 2014, and they they have a, like a, a room at the uh, uh, fleet supply uh, area, and it, it's like a library of old reports and documents. So, but nobody really looks at them, uh, and we've asked for access uh, to information, but it's always been a challenge. So. And with the old reports, is there kind of like that statues of limitations thing where like, uh, I forget what it's called, but after a certain amount of time, like the classified flat files are made public? So this is the kind of crazy thing I don't understand. Apparently in around 1995, they declassified the Red Hill facility. So prior to that, it was a classified secret facility. But... From 1995 to now, it's supposedly declassified. So what I don't understand is, then why can't we see all the information about the facility from the time it was built to the present? And every issue or problem that happened, you know, why can't we see that and have access to that information? So we can understand what we're dealing with. So it's not even classified then, from, okay. from a, from a like, top-down perspective. It's not, uh, at least in my mind, that's what they said. They declassified in 1995. That's so weird because it almost seems like somebody just doesn't want to get blamed, so they mm. pass it to the next guy. Well, they, they use the they use national security as the cloak, mm-hmm. and when they give us the reports, and you know, it'll have all these like somebody took a black sharpie and just oh, it's blacked out yeah. and redacted it uh, heavily. Um, they asked us uh, early on in in this whole whole chapter to sign a non-disclosure agreement, and I said no. I'm a public official. I work for the people. I'm not going to sign a NDA non-disclosure agreement because what I learned I should be able to share yeah. with my water board and with the community. Yeah. Was there pushback when they they just was it uh, for a while there was like this pushback and uh and we just stood our ground and said no we're not going to sign a non-disclosure agreement if you got to redact you redact and we'll comment on whatever is left mm-hmm. in those reports after the redactions and we'll give your share our monao to you so we did and we did it in writing uh so <laughs> during this process of something called the administrative order and consent we've written provided over 130 written comments to their work, to their reports. And that's all public? It's all public. Okay. Yeah. Oh, cool. Where, where could people find that? They can go to boardofwatersupply.com. Okay. If you can't find it there, just call us. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we also have water board meetings that are open to the public. And next week, Monday, we're going to have the Department of Health and US EPA join us 
at our water board meeting to talk about um, their basis uh, for setting the environmental action level for TPH, for total petroleum hydrocarbons, and also talk about the uh, AFFF uh, concentrate uh, liquid that leaked out last week and what, what they're doing and what they're learning. And that'll be next week, Monday, on uh, 2 o'clock. And okay. it'll be on, uh, available online, too. They can go to borderwatersupply.com uh, slash testimony, and there's instructions there on how to register for the Zoom meeting. Okay, so people, that's public. Or, that's public. And it's also on Vimeo on our website. Okay. So they'll oh, be able awesome. to watch it live. Yeah. That's super awesome. Yeah, I never know. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're just coming at it because we're, like, so out of the loop that we just want to, like, like put a spotlight on all this, you know? Because, like, it's, it sounds like the information's there, and just someone who's, like, an everyday person like me, like, we need to, like, if we can help, like, direct people to that so they can get more. Like how you said, knowledge is power. Knowledge it, is power. You know, so, like, to, to get a real good grasp on this whole situation. Because, I mean, coming in, like, it's easy to point fingers and say this person's bad, this person's good, but it's a pretty complicated situation that's been happening for, like, decades through multiple people, you know? Yeah. So it's like one of those things where the issue is like obvious, the solution is not quite, you know, because of how, like you talk about like compartmentalization, different, like working with different people. And really, you know, it, this is great. I really appreciate you folks taking the time. I, when I lived on Kauai, I, I could understand, you know, because you're almost a hundred miles away from Oahu, from Honolulu and all the craziness in Honolulu that's not on Kauai. Every time I come out of the airport on Kauai at Lihui, as soon as I walk out of the airport, like the stress level just comes down, <laughs> and the air is cleaner and cooler. I feel at much more peaceful when I'm back on Kauai. Come to Honolulu, it's kind of crazy, uh, but um, but I think the idea of the importance and value of our water resources, uh, not only for today but also into the future. Mm-hmm. Just using the Red Hill experience as a way to reinforce that with everybody uh, in our state is, I think, mm-hmm. a good thing, a, po- a positive out of this, a, a lesson learned out of this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is, though, right? I think, like, it kind of comes from a place of, like, negligence, right? And Kauai, Maui, Oahu, I mean, Big Island, everybody, if they're not paying attention, something can happen, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. If you're not really, like, taking into account, like, the long-term ramifications of things. And, and I think the other thing is, when you take the vi out of your faucet, think of it as a gift, a gift from Keakua. Because we are blessed in the middle of the vast Pacific Ocean. We have freshwater resources that we, we can just pump out of the ground and drink. That's amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, it's... It, it's kind of crazy. Well, I still drink from the tap on Kauai. <laughs> like I, I open Thank it you. and I drink <laughs> from the tap. Pounding. But I lived in New York. I lived in L.A. How was the water there? Oh, you don't drink it from the tap. <laughs> it's not clear. <laughs> we'll put it that way. It's not clear. It's definitely like it's brown. <laughs> but so like I totally get like how. I don't want to say spoiled, but like it's it's like luxurious to have this level of like water access to it, and not everybody does. Like I have friends who like do work in Africa, and like water is like their main issue. Clean water, 
you know, not getting sick every time you just drink water is like a huge issue there. I have friends from Flint, Michigan, where they still can't drink the water, where their thing is permanently like done, where their families have to like leave just because there's not this resource that's like mandatory for life. Wow. You know, so like I've seen it through people, through, through, through relationships where like that's already happened, right? So we're in this place that it's kind of on the precipice of like this could become something if we don't pay attention to it. If we don't like stand up for it, if we don't work through the right channels, but like do something about it, right? And I, I think this something for us is like there's no we me, me and Xavier stay away from political topics usually because both sides have have valid points. Mm-hmm. In this, there's no valid point on the other side. Like there just really isn't. There's no. I I work through it so much in my head. I'm like, well, what can they say? Nothing really. Like even for their own selves, if you're looking from them from a long-term perspective, it, it benefits them to fix it, to come up with a new alternative, to, to, to create something more modern and more clean, you know? It's just something that benefits the Navy and itself. You know, so there's no winner by holding these things in there. There's no nothing other than just like, just procrastination. That's it, you know? So, so that's what I don't get in this whole thing. It's like there is no, in my head, and I don't have all the information, and unless they obviously, like how you said, give it to us, we don't know. Yeah. You know, so, that, so that's the main thing. Like, and then what can we do? As, like, from your opinion, as like, individuals, as a community, there are people like standing up and talking about it. But you've been doing this for nine years, you know? So... You've said that you've seen as people, as the community have come out and, and been more vocal about it, that's kind of, would you say that's kind of really helped the movement, like oh, like, de- like, like the, the government and the Navy change their tune? Uh, definitely. And that and seeing the images and hearing the stories of the people that drank fuel-contaminated water and how their children and their pets were affected, how they're still feeling some of the effects. Yeah. I think that caught everybody's attention. This is this is not something that's theoretical. That's over there someplace. Mm-hmm. This is something that's real. That's here. Yeah, I mean, it's like five community. miles away from here. You know. Yeah, and yeah. it's affecting almost a hundred thousand people on this island, more than the number of people on Kauai, Kauai that yeah. live there. Yeah. So it's. I think that was just uh, eye-opening uh, for everybody, uh, and it, I. Th- it brought everybody together. Uh, and, it, you know, people are important to the solution here mm-hmm. because this by doesn't have a voice. It doesn't say, you're hurting me, you're putting me in pain, you're contaminating me. It can't say that. Only we can say and stand up for it with our voices. So whoever you are, uh, you can talk to your neighbors, you can talk to your family, you can talk to your elected officials and say you need to protect this resource. We need to keep the water pure and clean. And the Navy needs to be held accountable to clean it up and to get the fuel out of there. And and they uh, also, they need to pay for it too. Mm-hmm. They created this mess. They need to pay for all the costs we're facing. No, 100%. Yeah. 
Yeah. Is that? Oh no, we're we're oh. we're, we're, <laughs> we're trying to make sure you stay. You're, you're a busy man. Yeah. We're, we're trying to make sure you stay on your schedule. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Andrew's telling us there's ten minutes left, but yeah. like, no, for sure. And then you think like how you're saying our federal, like our congressmen and senators are probably the first people we should contact and then move down from there to the uh, state. And yeah, I, I would. Um, uh, you know, the, our, our congressional delegation, they're on the front line at the federal level, and this is a federal facility. So uh, we need their, their, their strength, their courage uh, to advocate for us on the front line at the federal level. At the state level, we need to see how we can support them. Or at the state level, too, because the Department of Health is a state agency, and it has legal regulatory authority that has been given to it through the state uh, state law, but also by the EPA for delegating some of the federal authority to our state Department of Health. So the Department of Health is also very important here. Um, and the EPA is, uh, of course, important, too. Got it. And just as we're coming out of time, um, kind of winding down time, is there anything specific that you wanted to like bring up, say, that maybe you felt like you never had time to say or just re reinforce? You know, I, I just want to say mahalo to the people of Hawaii, to the people that are standing up for the Vai here on Oahu too, but also standing up and making their voices heard even on the neighbor islands. Uh, I've received uh, letters or cards from the Big Island, Maui, Kauai, and just recently even from the the Ohana that used to live in Hawaii on the mainland are are writing and saying mahalo. But I just want to say mahalo everybody for standing up, for being the voice for the Vi, for its protection and its preservation. Mahalo. Right on. And then just as an individual, like... I would like to tell you thank you. Mm-hmm. Like, we saw you on the news, and it was a real quick clip. And honestly, like, it's kind of like, as it goes out, you're like, oh, I think it's fixed. Because, like, you don't hear about it, right? Once it's out of the news cycle, once it's out of the press. And then you come out and you talk about it with, like, such passion. I mean, obviously, you have years of of, of investment and working with this and trying to solve this problem. Um, but it's important without, like, especially, it's refreshing, um, my dad was a politician. I, I and, knew your dad. And I think he was a very different person than, this is not to say anything to other politicians, it's, he was unique in the sense where he was very passionate about like the things he did. And you seem very passionate about the things you do. And, and like what you do is not just a job, like it's almost like your life mission. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and, and that's refreshing and almost, and not even almost, it's very inspiring. You know, where it's like, okay, so, like, the spirit you bring to this kind of makes us as average people, like, gather around you. You know, take up the call. See this mission. So, I want to make sure that you you understand, like, I know when you're in offices and you work, like, on the day-to-day, it's not easy that you see that. But you, for sure, have a huge impact on this whole movement. Mm. And, I mean, without, if you weren't the person you were, we wouldn't have seen it. Yeah. You know, and I could probably say there's probably hundreds or thousands of people in that same boat as us wow. wouldn't know about it. So just to know that, like, your work matters right. and what you're doing is, like, super important. And even with the intensity and, and care that you do it with, 
you know, and we just want to commend you for that. I know that's not where you're like looking for, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. It, it's seen, you know, and, and it impacts us and other people. And, and we just want to thank you for that, you know. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And I, I'm just another, you know, public servant doing, doing our job. And in this case, it's my kuleana. Oh, thank you. It's our kuleana. Yeah, right on, bro. Again, bro, thank you, like, for real, taking the time. You know, you're like like Kathleen said, you're a busy guy, so taking the time for meet up and talk story. I really appreciate both of you uh, flying for, all the way from Kauai and hauling all this equipment over and, and taking the time to actually help us uh, spread this important message out and, and inform people, empower people with knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, we're stoked. We're happy to do it. Yeah. Yep. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Right on. Right yeah, on. Thank you. thank you. Thank uh-huh. you. Yeah, we'll get you to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Oh, oh wow. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was sick. Man. You, wow, you really, uh, I think I used to see you as a young boy. Oh, yeah. I probably wasn't doing good things. <laughs> so, 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 so erase that. <laughs> no, no, no. No, your dad never say bad things about you. Oh, no, yeah. Only his, only his hands. And <laughs> Stop it. But your dad, you know, you, when I first got to Kauai, he was just so supportive. And, oh, no. You and, know, coming from Honolulu, oh. it's like an outsider coming yeah. to Kauai. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that was my dad, though. He was all about, like, he didn't care. Like, he hired people who ran against him because they're the best person for the job, right? And they, get, and they, and they cared. Yeah. You know, so that, that was just his criteria. If he cared, then you're on. It doesn't matter if you like him or not. <laughs> you know, like, that was generally his thought as far as I, as a kid, as far as I observed, you know, yeah. so. Well, thank you. Oh, thank yep. you. Yeah. Are you guys going to now break down? Yeah, uh, we'll break down. We'll get everything. 